0: You've met With a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron
1: Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. And I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the
0: site. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. Dan, I'm so glad that you're back, you have just finished your move to Texas, and I was wondering whether Texas is the way I imagine it to be. Because you have to consider I've never been neither to Texas nor to the US. And to me, I just imagine Texas to be a place where, you know, you have gigantic fields and there's like an old wooden house, and there's like a man sitting <laughs> on the porch having himself some having himself some chewing tobacco with a rifle on his lap. You know? Yeah, well,
2: Stefan, I'm going to be honest, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I was <laughs> met with when I moved here. The, really? uh, the man is yeah, the man is very nice. You know, he's got some interesting interesting views on on a number of different things. But on the whole, he's very pleasant. And the 10-gallon hats are something to
1: behold. So I have to say, I promised listeners that you'd be showing up with a 10-gallon hat. And I, I feel because it's an audio show, I need to berate you for not having brought one. No, no. See, that's – well, first of all, don't make me out to be a liar because uh, not only am
2: I wearing a 10-gallon hat and Spurs, but I also have a cow <laughs> sitting directly next to me. Uh, and will be my <laughs> my co host during this segment.
1: <laughs>
0: ah, yes. <laughs> I'm convinced. They're they <laughs> Yeah. Are you like? Do you think you'll adopt a Texan accent? That's what I've been wondering because, like, generally, it happens relatively quickly. I thought you were
1: going to ask if the dude was going to adopt a cow.
0: <laughs> no, I've already got one.
2: No, I think only for only for jokes <laughs> will I adopt the accent. <laughs> Yep. So no, I'll stick to my, uh, you know, uh, my suppressed New England accent uh, while I'm down here.
0: <laughs> as you know out there, dear listeners, if you want to hear more jokes about different states in the US, then you can stick with a <laughs> with Terrible Fate, where we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. This show is free and it's independent. There are no advertisements, there are no paywalls, and instead we rely entirely on your support. And if you wish to contribute, we would be most humbly grateful. To do so, just go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Maybe we should take a straw poll though,
1: dude, because like some of our listeners might prefer advertisements to jokes about Texas.
0: (laughs) Maybe the advertisements are worse or better than the jokes would be. (laughs) Advertising some chewing tobacco. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) While Aaron and me, we're we're currently still fighting our way through uh, Returnal. I've Actually, I've rolled the credits, but I realized there's still so much that's still there content-wise. So we're going to take some more time before we talk about that. It is an uphill battle, literally. So <laughs> uh, in the meantime, though, Dan, you've uh, looked into uh, Mass Effect, and you're here to talk about that.
2: Yes. Yeah, so while well, well, you guys have been, um, you know, uh, just destroying yourselves, playing through Returnal, I've had a, a lovely trip down memory lane and played through the Mass Effect Legendary Collection. Um. And I wanted to, I wanted to talk about it today because it's something that, um, I in in my memory, it's one of the first big video game controversies to ever cross my desk, especially with a series that I'm very close to. And so I wanted to kind of share my perspective on um, how the series holds up, um, what that kind of ending quote debacle unquote uh, looks like nearly ten years
0: later, and. Just how the whole thing rounds out. So this is a legendary collection that, in my understanding, it brings in Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3, not Andromeda. Correct.
2: Yep. So Andromeda, the, the kind of black sheep of the series, perhaps undeservedly so, but that's another podcast, is not included. Um, Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. And all of the DLCs, save for one uh, which was lost, the code for it, I think was corrupted or lost or something. And so there was, um, it's for those of you listening, it's the pinnacle station DLC that I, they, I think Bioware had said we could redo it, but it would, it would take six months to, it would basically be like doing it from the ground up. So they didn't include that, which is kind of a shame,
0: but not, you know, not a huge loss, I suppose. Are these, these parts that, um, excluded from the Legendary Edition, not generally missed by by fans? Because I would always assume when a game announces itself to be a Legendary Collection or Definitive Edition that it is basically everything up to this point, except for with, in the case of Kingdom Hearts, as we spoke about a couple of episodes <laughs> ago. <laughs>
2: no, Definitive to Kingdom Hearts is a totally different word. Um, but uh, no, I don't... I You know, I, I read a lot of... Um, Sort of think pieces and articles about this in the in the past few weeks as I was playing it, and it, I think it seems mixed. Some people are upset that it's not there, but um, it's not like it it totally shifts the the story. Um, I think that people are fine without it, and newcomers to it don't know that it's not there.
1: Now, Dan, you're not a newcomer to the series. Far from that, I I feel like you've been telling me the story of Mass Effect, despite my <laughs> still not having played it for probably the better part of a decade at this point. And I know that not only was it really formative to you growing up playing games, but also back when you ran a YouTube channel taking defense, it was actually one of your topics uh, defending the, the antagonists of the game, the Reapers against yes. uh, what you have already called a debacle and you know, the various controversies around whether they do or don't make sense in the context of Mass Effect. So I figured before you dive into your new experience of the game, maybe you, you could share a little bit about what made it so meaningful to you and what drew you, drew you to it um, all those years ago.
2: In keeping with uh, my being the, Overly sentimental, sappy member of our podcast cohort. Um, yeah, Mass Effect is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I would honestly say too that it had a very formative role in my viewing games analytically the way that we do. Um, there's, you know, a, a famous moment in the second game. Um, And I I should say up top, this is going to be generally spoilery for the Mass Effect series. So if you haven't played them and you would like to, I'm going to be talking about a number of different things. So that's your fair warning here. There's a moment in Mass Effect 2 um, that essentially asks the player to make a choice between wiping an entire group, uh, wiping their memory so that they no longer are doing what they're doing, or killing them. And so the the question to of you know a fifteen year old Dan Hughes of should I take away everything that they've chosen to be or just let them die um, kind of made me walk away from the the game for a long time and it sat with me and I think that was the the hardest choice I had to make in that series so I think that's a pretty um, from what I understand that's a pretty general reaction to that question um, in that game, and I think that that kind of made me wonder about not only this series, but games as a whole. So very long running history with Mass Effect. Um, and, uh, I think overall I'm very positive on it. Um, regardless of sort of the, the, uh, the general response to certain quote problems with it.
0: So I can imagine it as a person who has not had much experience with Mass Effect, that it's this Gigantic space, um, let's say action RPG. In the latter in- entries, as far as I know, a little bit more leaning into the action side than in the former entries. Uh, and yes. its key feature is that you have a crew that you assemble, you have characters that you get to know, and you make important choices as to whether they live or die, or who you want to romance, and these kind of things. Right. That's right. Yep. So the look from ten thousand feet of Mass
2: Effect is that there is a um, a massive galaxy-ending threat. About to descend upon the galaxy, and so you take control of the the character Commander Shepard, um, and you build your your team. You get to know them. Um, it's a role playing game in the sense that you really do get to know these characters that are written um, very well and and are fleshed out very much. And it's all about making choices in certain circumstances. You know, deciding. How things should how things should go. Who should maybe live? Who doesn't live? Things like this. So, I would say that yes, uh, Stefan. To your point, it started out much more like a um, a personality-driven RPG, and it kept that. And then it became a very kind of action-oriented, um, run-and-gun kind of shooting game. But it always kept the heart of. You want to get to know these characters and make these decisions to impact not only the people in your direct orbit, but the actual galaxy beyond
1: the people that you're interacting with. You talked a little bit about the difference of the experience this time around in being able to play through all the games, one right after the other. I don't want to preempt that, but I was wondering, because I couldn't remember, how many years were there between the original games? Do you do you remember what the wait time was?
2: Yeah, so the original came out in seven I believe, and then Mass Effect Two came out uh, a number of years after that. I think in late two thousand nine, maybe two thousand ten, because the final game, Mass Effect Three, came out in twenty twelve. Um, so uh, there was a fair there was a fair gap between the games, and uh, what was so interesting about those games too is that they actually. Gave an explanation for the gap, kind of in universe as well. So to your point, Aaron, there was when you played them originally when they were coming out, you kind of felt the length of time, and the characters also felt the length of time because two thousand seven Mass Effect One comes out. Several years later, the story picks up. Several years later, and you kind of find out what happened in between the the those years. This there's uh, another gap that occurs between two and three, not as many years and the real world, but there is a gap that's felt. So originally, you kind of uh, feel as the characters do that this has been going on for quite some time and that things have had long reaching effects, mass effects, you might say. And then going in and playing the legendary collection, it is kind of, I, I did feel a little bit of whiplash kind of playing them one right after the next um, because it felt both more urgent. And uh, almost more relaxed in a way that I, I find hard to explain, because it's almost as if instead of waiting for the new installments, you're just looking at all of Mass Effect all at once.
0: Yeah, you have these gaps in between where your imagination can fill out a lot of things and you think about, like with the good old cliffhanger, I don't know whether it actually has a cliffhanger, but I mean, I assume sure it has. does. Yeah, <laughs> I would assume that it has some kind of thing that indicates that there will be a sequel at least. And uh, th- those are then the years where all the theories spawn all over the internet and people are discussing what can happen and which direction it could go. And in this case now, especially for people who play it in the Legendary Edition for the first time now, they don't have that, basically. They just go from one to the next, assuming they don't take a break deliberately in between. Well, and, and I, I'm
2: glad you bring that up, Stefan, because I think that, I hope anyway, that people playing it in rapid succession like I just did will actually make them appreciate the thematics of the entire series and the, the ending a lot more than people did when it originally came out, because exactly to your point, I think what happened was mass effect one was released and it's a very, um, it's a very contained story. It sets up for more narrative to happen after it, but if nothing else had come from it, it would have been its own kind of story. Then a couple of years go go by and Mass Effect 2 comes out and it's like the Empire Strikes Back. And it, it's, it's a total paradigm shift. Um, it's a lot of people's favorite game of the series. It's a lot of people's favorite game, period. Um, there's just a, a, a huge difference in the way that that story is told and what it sets up for in the third game. And so now you have all of this hype around the second game and how great it was and how much people enjoyed it. And you have this gap between two and three where all these questions have been asked and people are starting to theorycraft and wonder and frankly get their hopes up. And Mass Effect 3 comes along with a very deliberate agenda and a lot of those hopes are dashed and that's when you get the entire internet losing its mind when the ending of Mass Effect 3 wasn't exactly what they had hoped for. Even though I would argue it's
0: exactly what was planned from the start. Yeah, there was this controversy that only... I heard about it, but again, I was not involved because I hadn't played the game, and I, I just remember that people were super upset at the ending of Mass Effect 3, so upset even wasn't there wasn't it changed in some way? Yes. So people were
2: I, I mean the I cause I was involved heavily with the discourse back then, because I was I was probably 18 or so when that came out, and I was I, I loved it, and it the ending of Mass Effect Three I've, I've said this before, but it, it broke me down into tears the first time I saw it. Cause it just mm. felt like this release of this narrative that had been building. And so when that backlash came, uh, I remember thinking I couldn't wrap my head around it, but people felt betrayed. People felt like they were not given what they were promised. Um, and so much so that yes, to your point. So there was the original ending of mass effect three. And then, a free DLC was released, I think, a couple of months after, called the Extended Cut, where it added certain cutscenes, and it's it was kind of like a a director's cut to answer certain questions. So, without getting into um, the real specifics and the nitty-gritty of the lore behind Mass Effect, one of the choices that you can make, um, a few of the choices you can make at the end of Mass Effect Three, that de- Determines your ending has some really negative consequences for characters that you've gotten really close with. Mm. So um, they added some cutscenes to kind of say, well, wait a minute, what about these people? What's going on with them? Are they okay? And so there are a lot of things that in the original were kind of left to your imagination and maybe wasn't the point of the ending, but were put in to kind of satisfy people's needs. But the important thing, even with the extended cut, it didn't change the outcome of the choice. It just added some cutscenes to make people feel better about the kind of peripheral narrative. It still ended the same way. And now the interesting thing about the legendary collection is that, um, that original ending isn't in this game. It's the oh. extended cut. It's just the extended cut. So now instead of having to go and download these extra scenes, they just packaged it. To make the ending this sort of longer director's cut version.
1: Now help me, as someone who has only again heard heard about Mass Effect through our many conversations over the years, to remember this. There were the uh, the added cutscenes, but wasn't there also a DLC that added another possible ending that wasn't in the original version?
2: Yeah. Yes. Okay. So here's here's the ending um, without getting into the thematics. Right. So Mass Effect is all about these um, incredible forces called the reapers, um, which every 50,000 years or so they come to the galaxy, they wipe out the dominant species, they completely eradicate them. And then the cycle continues anew. So they come back every 50,000 years. So a big mystery of mass effect is why are they doing this? What, what is this force that keeps coming back? Um, the ending reveals that, um, and here's the big spoiler for the ending, everybody. Major plot spoiler. Yes, sir. So the ending reveals that the reapers were constructed by this ancient race as the answer to a question, which was what happens when we create life? And that life has questions about life. Um, When organic life creates synthetic life and the synthetics rebel against the organic life, it just leads to perpetual war. And so, this ancient race called the Leviathan created the Reapers as an answer to this to basically say, you need to, over a long, infinite period of time, compute the answer to this question of organic versus synthetic life. So, the Reapers reveal at the end of Mass Effect 3 that that's what the cycles have been. It's just been this big computing mechanism to try to find that answer. And so, the fact that Commander Shepherd The player, the first organic life form to ever reach this decision, has reached it, has altered the paradigm so much that it must come to an end. And so you're given three options, depending on how you've played the game. This was originally how it worked. You could either control the Reapers and use them to sort of benefit the species of the galaxy. Um, But there's a whole host of problems with that. You can destroy the Reapers. But that also destroys all synthetic life in the galaxy, as well as the, uh, the technology that allows people to travel faster than light. So it's very isolating. People will be on their own. Or in certain circumstances, you can choose a third option, which is the synthesis ending, where organic and synthetic life kind of co-evolve together in a world where they all share a consciousness and, you know, kind of propel everybody forward together. People didn't like those three options. There was a lot of jokes about it just being a different flavor of punch at the time, you know, because there's they're all coded different colors. Control is blue, destroy is red, synthesis is green. So people didn't like that. So a lot of people started saying, well, wait a minute, wouldn't Shepard just say, to hell with this? I don't want it. Isn't that an option? Like, I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to engage with this choice. And so they did add in the extended cut a fourth option, which is walk away from it and the cycle continues. So it ends with all of life being wiped out and a message from one of the characters as sort of a beacon to the next people to say, like, this is what we went through. This is what's coming for you. Be prepared. Right. So, yeah, people argued that uh, the death of the entire galaxy should have been
1: an option. (laughs) So they got what they wanted. <laughs> it sounds as if you uh, you don't share that sentiment that led to the addition of that fourth ending. I just I
2: love how much of a middle finger it feels like to me by Bioware, where it's it's like, listen, you wanted this option. All right, fine. yeah, everybody dies. You got what you wanted.
0: <laughs> but there is like I'm surprised that people are so upset about it because there is this green ending, which sounds like pretty much the default happy ending that you would expect,
2: right. Yes, and that's, that's the one that I chose the first time I played it. And honestly, Stefan, the reason that I haven't played it since 2012, I, I, I walked away from Mass Effect because to me, in my head, it was a complete narrative. All the choices that I made and all the, the power that I imbued into those choices led me to that ending. And it, it broke me down and it was very cathartic to see that happen. And I just decided that's Mass Effect for me. Um, the synthesis ending where everybody lives and everybody works together. It, to me, that was kind of the point of the series, but yeah, there are people who I think this may be the issue with these choice-based narratives because people get into their head that there is a true ending. Um, and that, uh, one is superior to another and that that should be the one that is natural. And I, I just don't agree with that assertion. So
0: yeah, yeah, I can very much understand that. I know the feeling from just recently playing Disco Elysium, which is also heavily choice based, and it's also a game that, regardless of what choice you make, it it always makes you feel bad in some kind of way, um, <laughs> which is even worse than the Mass Effect thing, right? Because you don't even have that kind of good option. But still, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm a bit surprised. I'm a bit surprised by this outrage, and uh, I'm. I, I would just wonder how did you, how did you feel about the ending now in playing it again, experiencing it again, knowing all this time, what would come at the end? I think that it, it colored my understanding of the,
2: the thematics and the narrative structure of the game series as a whole, because when I played it originally, when they were coming out, I was very much invested in the lore of the, the, the world. I loved the characters. Um, I loved the the setup. I loved the problem, this idea that there's this infinite cycle of this this impenetrable and unstoppable force coming to destroy everything and there's one person who can, you know, convince the galaxy to fight against it. I loved all of that. And I think that that's the reaction that Mass Effect players should have on their first go around because it is it is very powerful. It's a great series. I think that the problem, though, is that if you get that invested and you don't get exactly what you want, that's when you have outrage at the ending. I, when I played it, I think I've been pretty clear. I, I loved the ending that I got and I love the story. And I think going into it for this replay as an older person, nearly, nearly 10 years after the last game came out, I think that I, I kind of put together what the game is, re- the series is really about. I used to kind of say it's about the, the fight between organic and synthetic life. It's about this philosophical question of, you know, what, does, what do the created owe to the creator and vice versa, which I thought on its own was a very interesting philosophical question. But now I see that Mass Effect is really about choice and not in the way that it presents itself choice is something i think that we often feel gives us power and mass effect shows us that choice is limiting and it's really the illusion of choice that is that that kind of surrounds us all the time there's a lot of examples in mass effect where you even before the 3rd game by the way where you make choices thinking i want this outcome but then that outcome will never come or you make a choice to avoid an outcome and then someone else will do it anyway. So the outcome happens. So Mass Effect is about inevitability. That's what the Reapers are. The Reapers are inevitability. They're an end. And so this idea that we kind of trick ourselves into believing that we have choice when really things maybe are just kind of on a straight path for us. And you know that that's kind of a, a difficult thing to grapple with, especially when you're playing a game where you have choices and you can... Uh, build a character and build a team. But I think that the beautiful thing about Mass Effect is that it reminds me most, this time around, of Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan in the sense that, uh, okay, let's take for granted that everything will happen in a preordained fashion. What you can then take from that is either, oh, my choices don't matter. This is very nihilistic. I feel terrible about this. Or you can choose to say, well, that happened as it was going to happen no matter what, but I take the important things from my relationships, from the experiences, from the people I met, from the stories I told, from the stories I heard. The meaning is not in the outcome. It's in the sort of retroactive look at those choices that I made. And I think that for a video game series to do that so consistently like mass effect one, two, and three do is a triumph. And I, I can't sing its praises enough.
1: Dan, this is so fascinating to me because, uh, as, as has been on our mind in recent podcasts and also on articles that we've written on with a terrible fate, I think there's a really interesting interplay and conversation between creator of a game and player of a game in terms of the choices that are made and the constraints within which a player is able to make decisions, right? Whereas a lot of people think about choice in a video game either as something that's totally open and you can do anything you want, or there's no choice at all and you're just on rails. And a lot of the really interesting storytelling happens in some sweet middle ground, right? But I, I feel like there's at least a prima facie challenge to that in Mass Effect, which is maybe where a lot of people drew their ire from. So go back, for instance, to that choice from the second game, which you've told me about so many times in terms of either killing the race or, or erasing their memories, and which I think really does hold itself up as as something fascinating and aspirational in terms of game design, right? Where a choice is so impactful, the player literally has to put the game down and walk away and think about it before they can act on it, right? Um It strikes me, again, as someone who has not actually played through the trilogy yet, that those sorts of choices are so impactful, at least in part, because you feel that they're going to have a a real impact based on the decision you ultimately go with, right? So how do you square that with this idea of the illusion of choice? And could that perhaps be part of where some fans of the game drew their ire from in terms of the ultimate conclusion and what it said or didn't say about the value of the decisions they made over the trilogy?
2: I think that's kind of the point of Mass Effect
1: in in a really roundabout way,
2: because especially playing Mass Effect 3 this time, which, so if I, if I could bottle each game, Mass Effect 1 is like a really fun tabletop experience you have with your friends, where it's very, uh, you know, it, it gets down to the kind of metrics of role-playing very well. Mass Effect 2 is the best thing I said it before. It's Empire Strikes Back. It's like, wow, this is, this is totally different. This is a lot of fun. I love every part of this. Mass Effect 3 is, if you allow it, one of the most emotional experiences you will ever have in your life. And the reason is because the choices that you make in Mass Effect 2 that have, or in Mass Effect 1 even, that have these long tendrils that reach out into Mass Effect 3, Mass Effect 3 is going to happen how it happens. There are fixed events that need to happen. So, for example, let's go to that question, right? This idea of, um, so the, the race that I'm talking about, they're called the geth, these synthetic kind of robots. If anybody uh, is unfamiliar with mass effect, but familiar with star Trek, they're kind of like the Borg. It's just like this, um, synthetic race that has a consciousness that they all share. And so the question, um, of do we wipe out their memory or do we kill this particular group of them? has ripples in the sense that it's almost less about what you do with that group and more about how that choice affects one of your squad mates, a geth named Legion. There's a, a particular, uh, that choice happens in what's called a loyalty mission where you kind of gain the loyalty of a squad mate. And that's Legion's loyalty mission. One of these geth who kind of reaches out to the command to commander Shepard and says, Can you help me make this choice? So, the important thing is almost less what choice you make in that situation and more that Legion appreciates that you understood what he was or what it was expressing, and that it has these ripples into Mass Effect 3 where you see that Legion's interaction with Commander Shepard has changed the geth for the better. So, I think that it all comes down to. This not not to get too precious, but honestly, it comes down to the two interrupt choices of paragon versus renegade or as I would put it, be kind or be a jerk and if you're kind in your choices, people remember that the characters remember it and it has ripple effect it has mass effects into the galaxy and people are willing to work with you if you are a jerk about it, people remember that you were a jerk and that has mass effects so I think that the interesting thing is like, it, it really asks the player to consider not the actual outcome of the choice they're making, but the effect that the choice is having on those around them and the the reading of that effect as you move forward in the narrative.
0: I just want to shout out one a brief study that coincidentally came to my mind as you spoke about how uh, the, the effects that inevitability or the inevitable end of the world has on how people interact with one another and the choices they make, because there is a fantastic study about that. It is called, it's a study done in an MMO. Uh, I think the MMO was called Arc Age. And yes, that was an MMO. I I that, the story. Yeah, it was a server that was specifically set up uh, for, I think, a couple of months or weeks, I'm not quite sure, 270 a uh, million player records have been created and they've been communicated, you can join this MMO, but at the end of this time, everything will be erased. All the data will be erased. And they, they published this beautiful study called I would not plant apple trees if the world will be wiped. Analyzing hundreds of millions of behavioral records of players during an MMORPG beta test. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes. And this is, I think,
2: why the ending cause so much uproar is because it all comes down to attitude and kind of taking yourself out of the narrative or taking yourself out of the, the kind of nitty gritty of the narrative and thinking more about abstractly, what did I, what did I get from this experience? I got all of these incredible interactions with these incredibly written characters who felt fleshed out and realized. And I think that when I look back on the ending of Mass Effect 3, I feel nothing but catharsis for all of the buildup that those prior games had given. You know, I think that one of the, you know, one of the interesting things. So this time around, I chose the destroy ending because that's just how I felt playing it. Um, Because I had these different connections with different characters and they almost convinced me that that was the right thing. And. What I thought was kind of sweet in a way is that the extended cut at the end of it, once you make the decision and, you know, Shepard is no more and people are picking up the pieces, uh, one of the characters, this character, Admiral Hackett, who led the whole forces that Shepard was, was amassing. He has this almost like a wink to the audience where he says, um, you know, the, the, The mass relays are destroyed. People have been lost. You know, the synthetic life, the friends that we made. But we will rebuild. And it's like, yeah, everything's going to be okay. Just because you chose an ending that didn't happen exactly like you wanted doesn't mean that these people that you had these deep connections with are just, you know, you've betrayed them or something horrible has happened to them. The characters are actually reaching out and saying, we're going to be just fine. Thank you for joining us.
1: Dan, it's, it's really cool to me to hear that you chose a different ending than you did back in the day. And I know it's been years and years since you played it for the first time. And while I totally share your sentiment, as you know, that I, I don't understand what people mean when they talk about the true ending of a game. I do feel like oftentimes as players, we get attached to one ending ending. Um, of a game with multiple endings striking us as the one that we want to pursue, right? And it's really hard even when we replay a game to will ourselves to pick a different ending, for me at least, because yeah. I think of it as, oh, this is this is the ending that makes the most sense to me, right? And so I'd love to hear more about how you were led to choose a different ending this time. And, and maybe more broadly, just because so much time has elapsed, much like the the time jumps in between games, right? Between little Dan playing this and now adult Dan playing this, right? Like, d- did you feel as if you're age and every like all the video games that you've played and analyzed in the last many years and life experiences you've had led you to engage with the game differently as a player than you did way back when?
2: Yes, certainly all the games that I've played in between them and just certain life experiences that I've had. And I guess a change in a change in philosophy as well as I've grown older. But the reason I pick the synthesis ending, this ending where, um, everybody kind of co-evolves and, and works together for a brighter future. Uh, when I was younger is because I didn't want to see a, a big thing that was explained was if you choose the destroy ending, the geth will die. You know, this synthetic race that you befriend, they will, they will be wiped out because it destroys all synthetic life. And I thought, I can't, I can't adjudicate that. I can't, uh, I can't sacrifice them because that would go against everything that I've the way that I've played this game. I don't sacrifice. I find another way. You know, that's the the shepherd that I built. But playing at this time, I think that having the kind of analytical background that we do and the the thoughts that we think on with a terrible fate, I think it it struck me more as that is this kind of almost strange acquiescence to a world that maybe people don't have choice in, right? Because you're 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 inflicting this choice, this change onto them in a way that they aren't expecting and may have good results, but to me that was almost like wiping the memory of the Geth, um, which I refused to do because they made those choices to become that way. So I decided instead that the destroy ending, even though it led to the death of the Geth, um, and all the other synthetic life forms that you come to know in the game, to me it was more about choosing choice and having the ability to be free of these shackles of this cycle to take what you've learned and use it to rebuild, like the character says. So I think that for me it was much more of a, I I choose choice in a strange way, because that's how the game had led, uh, uh, led my thinking up to that point.
0: Uh, Dan, I really appreciate your impressions. It's a little bit, I guess you're one of the few, very few people on this planet who can talk about a Mass Effect in a game that makes me feel like I'm in a Jean-Paul Sartre lecture. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, if that's that's what you got out of it, then mission accomplished, shepherd out. (laughs) Shepherd out, dear listeners out there. Shall we move on to our side quests? Let's do it. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we talk about interesting news stories from the world of video games, or really whatever comes to our mind, whatever uh, we're currently pondering. And uh, I brought a story that obviously uh, led me to celebrate for a second. Uh, It is called The Politics of Far Cry 6. It's written by Navid Kavari. It's just basically an official statement by Ubisoft. And uh, thusly, it is also published on news.ubisoft.com. Uh, Just for context, Navid Kavari, he's the narrative director of Far Cry 6. And at long last, one must say, Ubisoft acknowledges, actually acknowledges that its newest title, Far Cry 6, is indeed political in some way. Uh, Just why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal for me? Why Why is it such a big deal for video game culture? For a long time, Ubisoft flat out refused to... Uh, acknowledge any political dimension in their games. And this is a little bit strange. I mean, one can think that, but it's quite wrong, I would say, because just just a few examples from recent Ubisoft games, we had The Division 2, which is a game that was advertised uh, with the White House in flames. We've had a series like Watch Dogs, which is a whole series about a dystopian regime of mass surveillance, even the biggest series, Assassin's Creed, is arguably about you know top tier political intrigue, right? It's about uh, like Assassin's Creed Unity about the French Revolution, Valhalla about the Vikings uh, invading England. So these are very decisively politically game political and, games. And the and the first Assassin's
2: Creed that launched Ubisoft into their current
0: you know superstardom is about the Crusades yeah <laughs> it is it is so obvious that over the years, it just became ridiculous that you uh, to me at least and to many others as well, that Ubisoft would, in any kind of interview when prompted on the political dimension of their games, uh, they would state it is not political, it is just entertainment. We just want to entertain people they uh, presumably Ubisoft wanted to avoid offending anyone, wanted to avoid taking sides. And now, in response to recently emerged criticism, Ubisoft's Navid Kavari issued a statement regarding Far Cry 6, uh, starting with the line, quote, our story is political, end quote. It's not a surprise because, again, if you look at Far Cry 6, uh, the political dimension is not particularly subtle here. Far Cry 6 was announced in July 2020 with a trailer Um, set in the fictional island of Yara, which is strongly inspired by Cuba. And the trailer prominently displayed the antagonist, El Presidente, Antoine Castillo, a fascist dictator, who violently fights against an ongoing revolution, and players then take the role of Dani Rojas, who is a local guerrilla soldier. So it's like, <laughs> to say that this would not be political. Nothing political. It's really, really tough to argue that, and I think they acknowledge that too. And Kavari uh, elaborates on that and states, quote, there are hard, relevant discussions in Far Cry 6 about the conditions that lead to the rise of fascism in a nation, the costs of imperialism, forced labor... The need for free and fair elections, LGBTQ plus rights, and more ellipses here, and end quote. So the team's main goal appears to be that they want to approach the subject with sensitivity. Kavari himself uh, fled the Iranian revolution in 1979. The team itself spoke to guerrilla soldiers and researched their stories, and they even employed experts and historians regarding the Caribbean. Uh, uh, region to get an understanding, a proper understanding of the culture. Uh, what Cavari does maintain, though, is that Far Cry Six will not provide a specific political stance on the current situation in Cuba. He wants to avoid that, which I think is fair to say because it's 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 not like you want to play Far Cry Six to be like, okay, so how, what kind of stance it will take specifically on Cuba, and instead he wishes for people to actually play the game before presenting assumptions on its political implications. He says, that's the last quote, my only hope is that we are willing to let the story speak for itself first before forming hard opinions on its political reflections, end quote. So Stefan,
1: I wanted to ask you about this uh, and being very conscientious about not wanting to make either (laughs) your interests or Kavari's objectives into straw men. But, you know, I, I think obviously the storytelling of video games is fascinating. The, The political aspect of it is, is something to which my interest just doesn't attach. So I'm out of my depth here, but I'm interested in what you mean and what you think, people from Ubisoft and what people in the literature mean to talk about a game as political. Right. And I I ask that because it seems like there could be at least two things that we're talking about. Right. One is simply that the story of a game, like the story of a book or any other fiction just contains politically relevant content which seems fairly incontrovertible and and something about which there wouldn't really be a debate in the first place right like as soon as you have something like the white house like that that's in some bare sense like we're talking about political content and then there's a more robust sense i would think in which we're talking about a game as didactic right where it it's trying to impart And uh, sway its consumer toward a particular view or a particular message, right? And that could be political or it could be any other kind of message, right? But where the author is actually trying to teach and convince through the story, right? Um, And it it seems to me, at least at the first reading of Kavari's statement, that he's saying the game is not didactic in that way. Although it is interesting and kind of hard to parse because I, I was trying to find the exact quote. It seems like he's saying they won't find that players of far cry 6 won't find a simple binary political statement so he he may be leaving conceptual space for it being didactic but just not in an oversimplified way but i just i'm finding it hard to navigate exactly what the terms of the discussion are in terms of it being political so i'd love for you to provide a little more background for us
0: i think that is one of the most um, problematic issues in this entire discourse the different layers of what political means there are people who would argue all games are political And I would, I mean, you alluded to that as well. Basically, whenever you have a story, whenever you tell, whenever you have a character and this character must be formed in a certain way, it always has a certain political dimension in the widest sense, I would argue. But still, just because every game is in some form political, that doesn't mean that games can't be political to varying degrees. Because I would also say there are games that are decisively political, that are persuasive, I would call them. That's a term I would borrow from from Ian Bogost, persuasive games that specifically want to make a political point, want to make a political statement. And somewhere in between, I would situate the Ubisoft games. As in, they pick up on political themes they construct a dictatorship in Far Cry 6, right? And uh, they go into historically important events and historical figures in Assassin's Creed and so on and so forth. Um, I, do under- I would read it the same way that you do, that it's not... They, they clearly want to withhold from making a clear persuasive statement about it. They want to, I think keep it open so that players can explore whatever alternative there might be or whatever perspective there might be without being too didactic. Because being didactic is, I think, in contemporary video game culture, considered to be not cool. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I think it is political in that way. And for me, the most important aspect is you can reflect on the political implications of your game if you acknowledge that they are there. Then you can actively think about it and you can reflect and potentially alter things in a way that you would want to express it. For me, it's more like being aware of the of what is there regarding political implications.
1: This is just really interesting to me because uh, I, I know we talked a little bit about the goals of the authors and how they responded to criticism uh, back when you, Dan, were talking about Mass Effect. And I think we're going to be going back to that topic in some of the other side quests. Um, and I'm kind of of two minds about this because i I clearly get that this game was a labor of love for Kavari, and I'm glad that especially given the kind of baggage that Ubisoft has been saddled with in terms of how their games use politics in the real world, he was able to clarify its its personal value to him right i think I think that there's something tremendously valuable about valuable about that, but I also find myself wondering like when you talk about the aperture of the discourse about this game being opened up by virtue of them admitting that it's political i i find it hard to wrap my head around that being the case cuz like to my mind if you if you play the video game and you see the content reflected in the text that is that game right whether or not the author intended it, like we were talking about on our episode about glitches, right? Like if the content is there and you can construct an analysis or interpretation out of it, right? Then like, what does it really matter at the end of the day for the discourse, whether the creator acknowledges it or not in your mind?
0: I think the the major difference that it makes is not so much for the analysis, but it is for uh, how sensitive do we want to be with certain political issues, such as... The Ubisoft games' key problem, a key problem that they always have, I feel, is that they pick up on political themes and use it basically like a, like a theme park, you know, <laughs> without actually saying anything about it, without going any in any interesting direction with it. A, a, a surveillance state in Watch sto- in Dogs that is not that is not negotiated in any interesting way, like 1984 did it, for example, but just like, hey, we can show off cool gadgets, and I think um, acknowledging that there is a political dimension and that you can do something with it is a certain empowerment of the author here because they can think about it. They can leave it as it is. It's up to them, but they also have the understanding. If you understand your game as political to make changes in accordance with that acknowledgement.
2: I also think that there is something, um, there's something to the dimension of almost responsibility when you're using, uh, Political sur- uh, surroundings like that. Um, I just, my mind goes to the, uh, I think it was the latest Black Ops game that totally rewrote history in the Cold War in a really kind of horrifically gross way. And I think that, um, you know, at that point, it's like, uh, w- well, uh, not acknowledging that is almost worse to me because it's almost like saying, we implicitly argue that this uh fake alternative reality that we've created is kind of the right way to do things or like this this is the way that it should have happened and i think that's the dark road that you go down um when you don't make these acknowledgments like the the kind of um uh neutral example would just be like an assassins creed game where it's like oh well you're bringing up these political issues you're not really doing anything with them it's just kind of the backdrop but i think the The worst case scenario is that it's trying to tell alternate histories without being explicit, like in a like Wolfenstein game where it's like, this game is about an alternate history with alternate politics, right? So I think that's my, that's my issue with, with these games where they use them as kind of backdrops is that you kind of, you, you run into further issues if you don't make careful acknowledgement, I think.
0: Yeah, Wolfenstein is a fantastic example of that because, as you may be able to imagine, Wolfenstein is a big game to discuss here in Germany. <laughs> you <know>? I, I <laughs> I'm no, <sure>. no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, though, that Wolfenstein, especially the two recent Wolfenstein games, they they pull it off very well—an engagement with such a sensitive subject, even in in German uh, in the German landscape, right? I mean, they've just recently been re-released here with swastikas because previously that was. Uh, Uh, very crucially prohibited. And uh, I think they can pull off such an engagement because they are conscious of the story that they are telling. They position themselves clearly and say, this is an anti-fascist game, you know? (laughs) Like we're not trying to appeal to potentially like uh, nationalists and say like, hey, we want to have them as an audience as well. But we have our story that we want to tell. And it's a story about killing Nazis. And they tell it with humor, they tell it with with a certain joy and a certain boldness that even allows them to address a subject subject like the Shoah or the Holocaust, as it's commonly referred to, um, without being completely thrashed in discourse for being insensitive. I think that's quite a wonderful thing to pull off.
1: Well, it sounds to me that uh, perhaps one of the really exciting and interesting things about this acknowledgement, um, to, to go back to what you both were saying, was that uh, even if people analyzing and engaging with these games had the license to interpret them in whatever way was uh, permitted by the text before this kind of acknowledgement. Now, perhaps future developers and storytellers will feel a different kind of empowerment to tell stories that directly engage with this kind of content if they so choose. And I think that's a really interesting and exciting
0: thing. Dan, what have you brought for your
1: side quest? Yes. So from,
2: uh, from deep, you know, political engagement with, uh, you know, the Che Guevara's and the the BJ Blaskovitzes of the world. We're going to move into uh, how Blizzard has changed <laughs> in the past 25 years and what people are kind of doing about it. Um, I I brought an article, a Bloomberg article uh, by Mr. Jason Schreier um, called Blizzard 2.0 Storms in to Make the Games Blizzard No Longer Wants To. And it's sort of a a quick capture of this paradigm shift that um Blizzard has found itself in where back you know back in the day um Blizzard made its bones with real-time strategy games like Warcraft and StarCraft and they're beloved games by people still to this day. I mean StarCraft has its own economy basically. Um and so it's something that uh it's it's one of these kind of pockets of video games that um feels like doesn't really exist anymore or it doesn't exist in the same way that it did when it was really big and we've kind of reached that um that part of the cycle of nostalgia where people miss those kinds of games um and blizzard has kind of shot past that so there was this whole um problem with the Warcraft 3 Reforged edition that people you know it was kind of like a you can't go home again situation um there were a lot of issues with it and people were very upset they made a lot of changes and i think that people have this desire to go back to these games and blizzard is such a an interesting example of this to me because world of warcraft the never-ending world of warcraft um doesn't exist like it used to and a big push for them was the classic version that they put out um and i think that there's this drive around blizzard to say well we live in a world with two or three blizzards And we kind of yearn to go back to a time when they could make real-time strategy games, but we can't because they just don't exist like that anymore. So this Blizzard 2.0 group, these um, alums from Blizzard from around that time, are kind of striking out on their own to make these sorts of real-time strategy games. And I, I just think that it's kind of an interesting topic to kind of talk about how things that used to be huge become niche interests um and people who worked on those games are trying to make their own bones and go back to that the other example that comes to my mind right away is the uh the folks from Rare that went to make Ukulele and there was a you know I I thought it was a good game but there is sort of a a feeling that the magic is lost almost um and I just find this a strange sort of phenomenon with video game developers in particular where People get nostalgic and they say, well, why don't we go back to that? And I wonder if you really can.
1: Hmm. I find that really interesting, too, just um, as a contrast class with a kind of story creation that is so much more commonplace these days and, and seems similar, but I think is importantly different, where major studios will just do reboots of popular franchises, right? Like even outside of video games, I mean, the entire modern Disney canon is rife with examples of this, right? Uh, And this seems like same but different where both cases are appealing to nostalgia, right? But one is like the original creators trying to reach back to something that was probably as formative for them as it was for the consumers of this media and trying to find ways to extend it versus, uh, you know, a, a larger studio or production company, just trying to recapitalize what is a known IP versus investing in, in new creations, you know? Yeah. It, that's a, a, a very
2: uniquely video
1: game problem.
2: I almost feel like where, um, because we were talking about this off mic, I'm going to see that Cruella movie this afternoon, you know? right? And we just, we live in a world where everything old is new again. Um, but it is sort of a, a strange thing that, that exists in the video game world where, like you say, Aaron, you know, we have these two examples now. We have Blizzard as it exists today trying to reach back to that magic and making Warcraft 3 again. And now you have this Blizzard 2.0 group trying to make games that are like Warcraft 3. And I think in both cases, I wonder if you can really please the people who want to go back to that time because it almost feels like the problem is nostalgia. <laughs>
0: Well, hasn't there also been this instance of uh, uh what was its what was its face uh, this mega man game mighty number no. nine mighty number nine yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. i often feel like these games have like these huge hopes attached the creator of of, of mega man goes independent to make his own game to realize the, again like true vision to do that he goes in the and then what comes out at the end of it is kind of disappointing because everyone wanted it to be this big relaunch, this big revival, but it just isn't. Yeah, that's, I, I feel like, uh, ukulele, I went with the, the nice example. Yeah. Mighty <laughs> number nine was like,
2: uh, that was, uh, lives in infamy now, I think. Um, but yes, I mean, that's, that's even a more interesting example because, uh, and Afane went to make Mighty number nine and, you know, he's, his name is attached to Mega Man, but then you kind of look into what he really did on Mega Man, and it's not, not a whole lot. And so you have this situation where or not as involved as people might think. He's not like a, a Hitchcock. He's not an auteur going and making this new game. So then you run into the problem of, well, we have this name recognition. We have this name attachment. But what they perceive of is not what the players perceive. So you run into problems like Mighty Number no. 9. But then on the other hand, you have, um, oh, I can't remember his full name, but Iga, the, uh, the guy behind, um, Castlevania, um, like symphony of the night, he's gone on to make Castlevania-esque games that are really successful and people love. So, I, I don't know what the magic formula is, but it's an interesting phenomenon in games. I think.
0: Yeah, I think we should make a whole episode about that because I just realized that Shenmue Three was exactly the same phenomenon, and it's like you're totally. <laughs> it seems to be. It seems to be all over the place. I hadn't noticed that, and I think maybe we can make an episode about such, you know, like failed revivals and and why the why they stumble. Oh, I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, and it it ties into questions
1: of genre too, because when we have these shorthands that Dan and I have often griped about at presentations in the past of calling something like a Souls-like or a Zelda-like, right? It it seems like there's this felt desire to reach into franchises that we know and and pull something out of them as a mode of engagement with, with other stories and worlds in the same medium, right? So I think it's... It's a, a a deeply modern and entrenched issue in how we consume games. Yep. And I,
2: I love the idea of making a main story out of it because uh, each time you mentioned a different game, I had a huge backwards <laughs> gasp. Like, oh, of course, of course this game. Oh, my God.
1: Shenmue 3. <laughs> what have you brought, Aaron? I've brought a little reflection on my own history of how I consume video games and an invitation to chat with you guys. And and hopefully you are dear listeners, uh, in terms of how you consume games. So to tell you a quick story about what's led me to this point back in the day when I was a wee lad, um, I typically had an unspoken rule where I would basically only play one game at a time. And I think this comes, Out of on the one hand how I treat games always just as stories to consume and then on the other hand how when I engage with the story I like to have all my attention on it Um, because I think oftentimes with great stories authors have put such care into architecting very detailed and nuanced worlds where it, it can be hard to track all of the really complicated and interesting points that are being made if you don't have all your attention on it right so uh, i really never had multiple uh game playthroughs going at a single time Uh, i would play one game uh, oftentimes it would be a long game like a jrpg and then not start another one uh, until it was done right uh but Perhaps to the surprise of some listeners and you guys, uh, this is something where my views actually have changed, so I I don't always hold on to the same views on things forever when it comes to video games, Uh, because in my recent adult history, uh, I've found that, especially as I like to game in different contexts, I will pick up and be playing more than one game at a given time. really just to have a game for different contexts. So there's, there'll be a game that I'm playing with my girlfriend and a game that I have for when I'm just on my own playing and maybe one game that I'm interested in digging into more consciously, analytically, and a game to just tune out and have something uh, to do in leisure time, right? And I've found that to be um, an interesting way to have a a more dynamic tapestry of Games going in my life at any given time. Right. Although I do still have this uh, this question of focus and, uh, and I try to bring my full attention to all of these games to the extent possible. Right. Uh, so I found myself. I don't know if evolving is the right word, but with my views on this changing at least a little bit. And then I played Returnal, <laughs> as as Stefan has teased a couple of times. Uh, we're, we're both in the process of playing through this game, and I won't give any spoilers or talk about the content of the game as such, except to say that it's what's known nowadays in gaming as a roguelike, where basically the primary form of playing this game consists in going through these cycles where you'll try to make as much progress as possible. And in the event that you die, you're kicked back to the very beginning of the game And while there are a few permanent improvements to your character or unlocked paths that remain the same, you you lose most of your progress that you've made since the last time that you've died. So you you can lose basically hours of material progress uh, if a cycle is restarted, right? Now, why is this interesting in the context of the story that I told you? Well, it's interesting because you could very easily conceive of a game that has that gameplay dynamic but allows you to save in the middle of a cycle and leave and do something else returnal doesn't let you do that (laughs) um if you exit the game and you're in the middle of a cycle you will lose all of your progress and be forced to start a new cycle the next time you open it up uh and now i i think that's really interesting i haven't finished the game yet but i have hopes that an overall analysis of the game will make that dynamic of it, narratively meaningful. And I can see it going in that direction, but to give a much more human face of frustration to it, uh, one of the things I love about the PlayStation Five is how easy it is to switch between different games uh, and do this exact kind of, you know, having multiple playthroughs of different games going at different times. Uh, in contrast with Eternal, there was a time where I I just had fat fingers on my PS5 controller and accidentally opened up a different <laughs> game without <laughs> intending to. And I lost like two and a half hours of progress on Returnal just because I accidentally opened something else in my system, right? And I was like pulling my hair out over this. Like, I can't believe I was so stupid to have done that. So Returnal, in this really interesting way, has forced me back to that older perspective of only being able to play one game at, at a time. Because when I decide to sit down and play Returnal, I have to commit to play only that until I reach a natural breaking point in the cycles, right? And that's been really interesting to me to have my focus reattuned in that way that I had kind of begun my gaming career with, but had uh, not outgrown, but changed my perspective on, right? And so having now seen both sides of the coin, I wanted to just ask you guys, and again, hopefully we can get our listeners engaged with this, but how do you find your consumption of games. Like, do you play multiple games at a given time? And do you feel like that draws your focus away from any given game? Do you think that there's some merit to engaging in a more focused way with just one game? Or do you feel like seeing multiple games at a single time actually affords you more of a nuanced, uh, perhaps, intertextual
0: perspective on any given game that you're playing. What do you think? Regarding Returnal, uh, I have a lot of things to say about that as well. I won't do it here now, but just as a brief anecdote, I lost two to three hours of progress as well due to my PS5 crashing while trying to put it into rest uh, mode. So I, I you guys feel... are really selling
1: me on this game. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Dan. You've played the whole Dark Souls saga like three times. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, you played through enough. the entirety of Mass Effect but well, we went through like a 25-hour game. I had such a nice time with my friends and you guys are just tearing your hair out. <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your question, Aaron, I actually have a very similar experience to you because I grew up as, as a child... Being told, uh, no, you gotta finish that game first, you know, because I, I come from like a we from a household that isn't like blessed by a lot of income, and uh, it was always the idea that I get one game and then I can ask my parents to maybe give me a next game when I finished that one, and that's how I always that's how I always worked and approached games. You need to at least roll the credits, uh, maybe even platinum it later on when trophies were introduced before I jump into the next one. Um, nowadays, it has changed a little bit, just simply due to my job. Um, obviously, when when uh, working as a journalist, you had, you had to review games. They would come in, and then you had to like shift away from whatever game you were currently playing in your free time. And now, it is also the case that not only do I have something like, let's say, a a small game that I play with people online just to chill out a little bit, and a game that I'm primarily focused on. I still have, I still maintain that always one game that I'm working on, basically. But at the same time, I have games that I play for my PhD, where I need to revisit things. I have games that I play with my students for my classes. Um, so yeah, it shifts a little bit, but I still try to maintain the focus really on one game that I'm persistently emotionally involved in.
2: I I had almost the exact same uh, upbringing with games, Stefan. Where you know it was it was less my, my parents didn't have the directive of you need to finish that, but it was more so didn't we just buy you one? Yeah. Or like they didn't, you know, it was, it was the sort of like, they didn't understand that there were multiple video games, you know, <laughs> for a while, but well, that they were different um, in any so, way. Right. Yeah. Right. I wasn't, I, I have a very vivid memory of my, my grandfather buying me Pokemon yellow and he paid, you know, $60 for it. And he said, all of that for that, <laughs> he was just holding the cartridge. I said, it's a lot more than you think, but um, yeah. So I, I would often get very invested in them because it was the only one I had where it was the only, it was, it was like a brand new experience that I was totally invested in. And I try to maintain some of that nowadays, but I think, like you said, my job gets in the way. Sometimes I have to take breaks. You know, I, I, if I could play video games all day, I would, but, um, you know, I have to make money and eat and all that fun stuff. So I think my system is, um, I, I, I have a two pronged system prong. The first is, I have a game that I'm really interested in and that I want to pay my full attention to. So I when I'm playing it, I'm engaged. I'm not listening to anything, I'm not watching anything else. I'm just experiencing the game as a whole. That's usually when a new game comes out. Um and then I have the kind of second game that I'm playing which I call like the grind game, which is if I just want to tune my brain off and maybe watch a movie or listen to something like a podcast, I'll put on something that I'm very familiar with or that is, uh, heavily involved with, with like grinding in some way or another, just to sort of enjoy a game as I'm doing something else. So, uh, that being said though, I never play two story heavy games at once. Cause I try to focus on the the one that I want to be engaged
1: in, I think for me, part of what's drawn my attention to this phenomenon uh, at at this current moment in my gaming life is um, the the two games I'm primarily playing right now, uh, as as I've told you both and and our listeners, are Returnal and Final Fantasy IX, right? Uh, and I think that's been a really interesting case to consider for me. Because I feel like across some dimensions of gaming, the simultaneous play has augmented my experience and in other dimensions, it's detracted from it. And what I mean by that is uh, actually this distinction that we've picked up on a couple of times in our episodes. And Dan, I know it was really on your mind in the episode about Kingdom Hearts, right? This distinction between kind of the, the broader theming of a story on the one hand and the finer details of plot points on the other hand. Right, I think that playing two games at the same time is really interesting to me in terms of theming because I feel like being able to meditate on similar themes in very different games gives me a richer way of engaging with both of them. Right, I find myself thinking, for example, a lot more about the psychological elements that are in Final Fantasy IX, but maybe not at the forefront of Final Fantasy IX because I'm in the middle of playing Returnal, which is a a deeply psychological game. Right, uh, but then on the other hand, uh, especially when one of those games is a JRPG where the plot is just so complicated and there's so many little things to keep track of, that kind of more like cataloging of the mundanities of story is much harder to do. At least for my you know rapidly aging brain, uh, when <laughs> when I have to keep track of two such stories at a single time, right? So it's it's interesting. I don't know if that ends up being a net positive or a net negative, but it, it definitely makes for a different kind of experience.
0: Yeah, and maybe you, dear listeners out there, could let us know how you handle this. Uh, You can write into this show at podcast at withaterriblefate.com. You can, of course, find us on Facebook and on Twitter to contact us. You can go to withaterriblefate.com to read all of our written content. And if you enjoy this show, then please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash withaterriblefate or go on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. We would very much appreciate that. And then we'll talk again next week.